All right, so we are continuing the series in the book of Mark, King and Cross, and we're going to see over and over again that the book of Mark is focusing on the identity of Jesus, who he is, and the mission of Jesus, why he came. He's the king, that's his identity, and he came to die on a cross, that's his mission. And actually, both of those things were surprising. They didn't expect God in the flesh and they didn't expect him to come and die on a cross. They expected him to be a political military leader who would throw down Roman oppression and, and set them free in that sense. And they needed something much deeper than freedom from political powers. They needed freedom from sin, and so do we all. Freedom from the judgment our sin deserves. So, Gospel of Mark... Um, it's the shortest of the four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the shortest. Um, so I met with the worship team on Wednesday night. I do each week or whoever's preaching does. And we go over the order of service and um, usually give a thumbnail sketch of the passage that I'm going to be preaching and mention some of the themes. And I mentioned that there's the repetition of the word immediately in the Gospel of Mark, it actually is present 41 times in the Gospel of Mark, and it's only present 51 times in the whole New Testament. So maybe this is like an important word in the Gospel of Mark, okay? And we're going to consider that. Um, it's actually seven times in our section for today. Twice it's translated at once, but usually it's translated immediately, okay? The point is the Gospel of Mark is short. It's the shortest of the four. It's fast-paced. This gospel account focuses more on what Jesus does than what he says. Certainly focuses on what he says, okay, but compared with the other gospel accounts, it's way more on what he does. So who he is and his authority as the Messiah, as the king, is demonstrated over and over again by what he does. Jesus is a man of decisive action. He's a man on a mission. And there's this sense of urgency immediately, immediately, immediately this, immediately that. And actually, we were kind of joking a little bit. I think it was Rob who made this point. Um, you know, this is like the gospel for people with ADD. And that's, ADD is not a joke, okay? But we can all struggle with attention issues, right? And, you know, it was funny. But the more I thought about it, maybe that's actually a point worth taking, taking seriously. Like, again, attention issues are not a joke. They can create real problems. But can't we all, or don't we all, like, struggle with what we could call spiritual ADD? Like, really attending to, giving God our full attention is not always the easiest thing. I mean, even the psalmist, it's, it's encouraging that he prays, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain because my heart's like spring-loaded to go after everything else. So we need to battle against our attention spans, like our, our attention that can be so fugitive, like a pinball machine, but bing, 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 you know, like a pinball. Like it's just so hard to focus. And we've got our phones and like, you know, how often do you have a conversation where somebody looks you in the eye and like attends to you the whole time? It's rare. We've got to fight against our fugitive attention and certainly most of all in relation to God, most important person in the universe, the most important person in each of our lives. But I think it's kind of cool that God also accommodates and helps us distractible children 
whose attention is always fugitive by giving us the gospel of Mark. That's like, boom, 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 boom. Action-oriented, short and pithy. He wants us to get it. Us, with our attention issues. He wants us to pay attention and he kind of dials it down a little bit in Mark to help us stay focused, to show us Jesus, to get our attention. He gives us this gospel, the shortest one, with lots of immediately's in order to help us. So hopefully that's encouraging and I hope that's a (laughs) faithful application of the brevity of this gospel. All right, so a key theme in this section that we're going to look at, Jemmy read it so well, um, Mark 1, 21 and 45, is the authority of Jesus. Maybe you heard it repeated. Um, So we're going to see that over and over again. And we really should connect the dots between this week and last week. So Chris Elliott um, handled the word so well last week. Mark 1, 14 to 20. Okay, we're not going to go over that again. If you missed it, you can listen to it online. But the focus on authority here comes on the heels of the kingdom of God being at hand. That's what Jesus says in that section last week. The kingdom is at hand. It's here. The king is here. Jesus is the king, so he's bringing the kingdom. And so what do you see? What do you hear when the king shows up and the kingdom is at hand? His authority. So it's, it's showing you that the king is here, the kingdom is at hand, and so what you're going to see is the power of God, the authority of God in and through Jesus, God in the flesh. Okay? I love this line by William Lane, one of the commentators that I read. The disturbance of men by God had begun. Like, God just doesn't leave us status quo. He's, this is a good disturbance, a needed disturbance, and it has begun. So let's consider it here. First point, authoritative teaching, verses 21 and 22. So Mark 1, 21 and 22, authoritative teaching. So they went into Capernaum, and immediately, there's that word, On the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. We need a little background here, okay? You know that a synagogue is different than a temple. There was one temple in Jerusalem. But there were lots of synagogues all over the place. Everybody would go to the temple for festivals, you know, like the Passover and Feast of Weeks and so forth, but the regular teaching happened in the synagogues. So commentator James Edwards summarizes it well like this. He says, unlike the temple in Jerusalem where animal sacrifice was practiced by priests, Jewish synagogues, according to rabbinic nomenclature, were assembly halls or auditoriums where the Torah was read and expounded. God's law, his instruction was read and taught. There was but one temple in Jerusalem, whereas synagogues, just means gathering places, could be found throughout the Mediterranean world wherever 10 or more Jewish males 13 years of age or older were present. So if there were that many bar mitzvahed young men in a town, you'd have a synagogue. That's their 
laws. I didn't make that up. I'm just telling you that's what, or he's telling us that's what happened back then. The only official in charge of a synagogue was the ruler of the synagogue, position that included the responsibilities of librarian, worship committee, custodian, and perhaps school teacher. The ruler of the synagogue did not preach or expound the Torah, however, which meant that the Sabbath teaching and exposition fell to the laity and on this occasion to Jesus. Okay? Second thing we need to know is who are these scribes? Okay, so Jesus' teaching is different from the scribes. His has authority. Well, the scribes were experts in the law, in the Torah. And they were capable of making binding decisions on its interpretation, but really their teaching was characterized by always quoting someone before. Okay, they derived their authority from the tradition of the elders. So they're always quoting others. Jesus had original authority. He didn't quote, you know, thus says so-and-so in the Midrash or whatever. Instead, do you remember in, in um, Sermon on the Mount, over and over again, you've heard it said, but I say to you. That was shocking. Okay, we, we've, we're familiar with it, but that would be shocking. His teaching had authority. He didn't need to depend on anyone else for it. It was original. So we see his authoritative teaching. Secondly, he's got authority over demons. Okay, look at verses 23 to 27. Authority over the demons. Point number two. And immediately, so that word again, the action is moving along quick, quickly, fast-paced. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So what's going on here? Jesus shuts up this demon quickly because in an ancient Near Eastern mindset, naming someone was an exercise of authority or control over them. And Jesus is saying, uh, I'm in control here, not you. Shut up. But note a few things here. Note this demon's use of I and us. I know who you are. What have you to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? So Jesus isn't just coming for this one. He's aiming to bring down and destroy the whole regime. And they actually know this. A couple other things that are interesting here. The title, The Holy One of God. There's one other person. This is kind of like surprising. There's one other person in the, in the Bible called the Holy One of God. Human. Anybody know who it is? I was surprised. Samson. Okay, um, is that supposed to be, you know, what's in their mind here? A little weird that you, till you stop and think about it, who was Samson? He was a, <laughs> he was a mess, <laughs> but he was Israel's deliverer. He was a strong man who delivered God's people from their enemies, the Philistines at the time. Well, Jesus is an even better and stronger strong man without all the moral corruption <laughs> of Samson. So maybe if you're familiar with the Gospel of Mark or some of the other Gospels, you might be thinking of a passage that's coming up very soon here. Flip ahead to Mark 3. Because again, the Gospel of Mark, all about his identity and all about his mission. Why did he come? What's he here to do? 
And in Mark 3, Jesus had cast out demons. The scribes said that he was possessed by Satan, was casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons. And Jesus said, what? Like a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And then he said in verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first, first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. That's what Jesus came to do. He's going to bind Satan and plunder his house. Set free the captives. That's why he came. He's an infinitely greater Samson. So he is the Holy One of God, not just as a judge and deliverer, but as God in the flesh, the judge and the deliverer. So, this strong man is coming, stronger man, strongest man. He's going to bind Satan, and he does it not at the expense of Satan's victims, but on their behalf. Okay, so we're going to see his MO, like how he operates here. We're going to see his, his purpose and his identity, just his heart when it comes to casting out demons and some of the other things that he does in this section. So not only are unclean spirits expelled, but broken people are restored to health and wholeness and to the possibility of restoration with their creator in whose image they are made. So Jesus' miracles, whether that's healings or casting out demons, they weren't magic tricks. He's not just trying to impress people. Hey, watch this. It's authority exercised to free captives. So we're going to see his authority over and over again, but notice also why he uses it, how he uses it. It's in order to heal and to rescue and to build up. All right? So that's how he uses his authority. These are not just magic tricks intended to impress. This is the power of the king, the power of the kingdom unleashed to free the captives and establish the kingdom. So Jesus rebukes this demon, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. William Lane, another commentator, says the recognition formula is not a confession you're the Holy One of God, but a defensive attempt to gain control of Jesus in accordance with the common concept of that day that the use of the precise name of an individual or spirit would secure mastery over him. I mentioned that earlier. But again, this is so different from anything that they had experienced before. So there were exorcists in the first century, but they always had these elaborate rituals and, and things like Josephus is an ancient historian, okay, and he wrote this book called Antiquities, and he tells of an exorcist named Eleazar who, before Emperor Vespasian, performed an exorcism, and here's how he did it. Quote, he put to the nose of the possessed man a ring which had under its seal one of the roots, like some kind of strong-smelling root, you know, like in the ground, um, prescribed by Solomon, and then as the man smelled it, drew out the demon through his nostrils. 
And when the man at once fell down, adjured the demon never to come back into him, speaking Solomon's name and reciting the incantations which he had composed. Then, wishing to convince the bystanders and prove to them that he had this power, Eleazar placed a foot basin full of water a little way off and commanded the demon as it went out of the man to overturn it and make known to the spectators that it had left the man. Jesus doesn't do any of that craziness. He doesn't cast out the demon in the name of a deity. He doesn't use any special magic arts or words, no special techniques, no spells, no incantations. He just says, out. He just says the word, and the most rebellious of beings immediately obeyed. Think about it. Like, you know, little kids come into the world. They're pretty rebellious, but they're also made in the image of God. These are all rebellion. These fallen angels, like all rebellion. Most rebellious beings in the universe immediately obey. Do you see the identity of Jesus? His authority is being demonstrated here in his control over the demons. So Jesus' confrontation with the powers of darkness, it began in the wilderness two weeks ago, remember? We considered that after the baptism. He was out in the wilderness. Satan was tempting him. So the, the confrontation with the powers of darkness has already begun. It continues here. Powers of darkness are being confronted by Jesus and being cast out by Jesus. God's not indifferent to the suffering in this world. He's doing something about it. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of light has come and it is exposing and expelling the darkness. It was happening there. It happens. It continues to happen today as his kingdom comes. So domain of darkness has been invaded. Jesus came to bind the strong man, plunder his house. He's empowered by God's Holy Spirit. Remember the baptism and the spirit came down as a dove and empowered him. And he's casting out the unclean spirits. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's casting out the unclean spirits. And they're all amazed. Verse 27, amazed. So that they question among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority, with power. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Authority, authority, authority. Listen, have any of you ever been around someone who is clearly demonized? Certainly I know Brother Dwight and Sister Miriam have in Africa. I think sometimes one of the lies that Satan sells in the West with all of our technology and explanations is, you know, I don't really think that's an issue anymore. We've got scientific or psychological explanations for everything. Well, that's a good way to hide in plain sight. And again, I'm not saying there's a demon under every rock, but the point is we live in a world that has dark forces at work. And it's scary stuff if you've ever encountered it. But Jesus is in complete control here. There is not a whiff of fear. In fact, they are terrified of him. He terrifies the terrifiers. So listen, Satan may prowl around like a lion, 1 Peter 5, seeking whom he may devour. But Jesus is the lion of Judah. Satan's on a leash. Jesus is on a throne. Okay? Authority over the demons 
And next, authority over disease. Point number three, and we're going to see it with Peter's mother-in-law as well as this leper. So look at verses 29 to 31. First, Peter's mother-in-law. And immediately, there it is again, boom, next thing, demonstrating his authority, demonstrating his authority. Immediately, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law, which means Peter was married, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. I don't know if that last line bothers anybody that she began to serve them, but just, just in case, I mean, the worst thing, if there's any cynic in anyone's heart, it's like, oh, so Jesus, you know, heals her just to have her weight on him, hand and foot. No. Serve them, the same word as the angels serving Jesus in the wilderness after the temptation. Serve there is the same word as Jesus in Mark 10. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What it means to be a disciple of Jesus is just kind of woven through this whole book and it's characteristic of someone who follows Jesus to be a servant. Because even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And if you follow him, you're going to be a servant. Whoever wishes to be great must be a servant, right? So also, one commentator mentioned that there's no resulting weakness from the fever. Like the fever left her and immediately she has strength to serve because it was a full and complete healing. Do you see? So again, this speaks of the power of Jesus. And it's also interesting that Jesus healed her on the Sabbath if you pay attention to the flow here. And she is serving on the Sabbath. <gasps> you know how Jesus kind of picks that fight periodically, healing somebody on the Sabbath? And it really, you know, the religious leaders get their knickers in a twist over it all. Well, new wine for new wineskins. That's going to be in a couple weeks. Um, so, all right, the leper. So he exercised authority over disease in the account with, or the encounter with Peter's mother-in-law, just raising her up, taking care of that fever. And now with the leper. Look at verses 40 to 42. And a leper came to Jesus, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, like if you so desire, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will, I do desire, be clean. And here's our word again, immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. So if you're familiar with the Bible, familiar with the Gospels, like leprosy, lepers, okay, easy to read right past it. Like, but let's just slow down and make sure that we don't miss what's here because we're familiar with it, okay? Let's not assume we've seen everything we should see here. So leprosy was a subject of 
superstition and fear in the first century. It actually is still today, isn't it? It was considered divine punishment. Only God could cure it. Okay, so you have like Miriam in Numbers 12, struck with leprosy, and only God can heal her. Naaman the Syrian, 2 Kings 5, only God can heal him through ministry of the prophet. The Jewish rabbis actually said, and it was believed at the time, that curing leprosy was as difficult as raising the dead. That was the mindset. And if you've ever made it all the way through Leviticus in your Bible reading program and didn't like give up, you made it to Leviticus, Leviticus 13 where the, like what lepers were supposed to do, how they had to conduct themselves according to Mosaic law is spelled out. So listen to this. The leprous person, I think we have it up there, who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip. I think that means you know, masks all the way back then, you know, the pandemic, different context. Um, he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So James Edwards writes this. This is not simply the description of an illness. It is a sentence. Lepers were victims of far more than the disease itself. The disease robbed them of their health, and the sentence imposed on them as a consequence robbed them of their name, occupation, habits, family and fellowship, and worshiping community. Like you were totally an outcast. This is very different from a fever, right? From a fever, you simply need to be healed. From leprosy, you need to be healed and cleansed so that you can be brought back into the community. So... It is offensive, actually, that this leper approached Jesus like this. He was supposed to stand at a distance of 50 paces and cry out, you know, unclean, unclean, so that nobody would get close enough to get, you know, ritually contaminated and unclean themselves. So to approach like this compromised Jesus' ritual cleanliness and the disciples. He's breaking all law and custom but why? Because he believed Jesus could heal him. He didn't question Jesus' ability. If you will, you can make me clean. He questioned his willingness. That's probably a pretty relevant question for us. We don't struggle with his ability, but we oftentimes wonder about his willingness. Maybe that's why this passage is in here, to bolster our confidence in the willingness of Jesus. So if the, if the leper's approach was scandalous, Jesus' response was even more scandalous. Okay, listen to James Edwards again here. Surprisingly, the response of Jesus is no less scandalous than the leper's audacity. In the face of such an intrusion, one would expect an observant Jew to recoil in protection and defense. But with Jesus, compassion replaces contempt. Rather than turning from the leper, Jesus turns to him. Indeed, he touches him, bringing himself into full contact with physical and ritual untouchability. The outstretched arm of Jesus is a long reach for his day, for any day. 
It removes the social, physical, and spiritual separations prescribed by the Torah and custom alike. The touch of Jesus speaks more loudly than his words. Isn't that characteristic of the book of Mark? And the words of Jesus touch the leper more deeply than any act of human love. Jesus is not, a, not only able, but desirous. I am willing, he says, be clean. Unlike an ordinary rabbi, Jesus is not polluted by the leper's disease. Rather, the leper is cleansed and healed by Jesus' contagious holiness. Yes. So easy to read right past this, but this is like earth-shaking on multiple levels. It's certainly earth-shaking just on the miracle level, right? Like, I mean, imagine that I invite you over to our house tonight for a cookout and I build a fire in the backyard and I put, you know, get this blazing fire, it's like this high, you know, and I just like stick my arm in the fire. And instead of my arm burning off, all the fire, all the heat, everything is like absorbed up into my arm. How are you going to react to that? Like the Marvel Universe has just entered <laughs> Wilmington. Like, what in the world is going on here? Well, that's the kind of awe that this would elicit. He touches a leper, and instead of him becoming unclean, that leper's cleansed? What? This is hard as raising the dead. Well, okay. He can do that too, and he will. It's almost like he absorbed all the uncleanness into himself and extinguished it. Huh. Sounds like the cross. I will take all of your sin and uncleanness and be condemned under the curse so that I can make you clean and holy before God extinguishes all of that sin and all of its judgment and all the guilt. It is finished. So if Jesus is your king, if he is your savior, all of that defilement, all of that sin, if you turn from your sin, trust in him, you bring all of that uncleanness to the table and he says, I'll take that. And he gives you his holiness, he sets you apart as his own. So if you haven't done that yet, you can do that right now. All you have to do is ask. He's willing and he's able. Verse 43, and Jesus sternly charged him and said, this is like pretty strong language. He sent him away at once, that's immediately, and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. <laughs> Does that seem kind of like a weird request? But go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus is honoring Mosaic law here as far as cleanness and so forth. But what did the guy do? He goes out and began to talk freely about it, spread the news. Be kind of hard to keep quiet about this, right? so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Again, this James Edward guy has a good comment here. 
He says, an adverse irony results. Jesus has relieved the leper of his burden, but in broadcasting the news, the leper imposes a burden on Jesus, for he could no longer enter a town openly but stayed outside in lonely places. Mark began this story with Jesus on the inside and the leper on the outside. At the end of the story, Jesus is on the outside in lonely places. Jesus and the leper have traded places. If you were a leper, you were an outcast. You couldn't come in. You were cut off from community. Jesus traded places with this leper. Mark casts him in the role of the servant of the Lord who bears the iniquities of others and whose bearing of them causes him to be numbered with the transgressors. Hmm. Isn't this cool? Like in these episodes, we're seeing the gospel already in embryonic form. Jesus became an outcast in order to bring home an outcast. Hmm. So if you put these three episodes together, points two and three, the demon-possessed man, Simon's mother-in-law, and the leper, we see Jesus' authority over spiritual and physical worlds, dimensions. He's got authority over it all. Now, we heard how Jesus silenced the demon, and he also commanded the leper to be quiet about the healing. Why? This is actually going to be a repeated theme in the Gospel of Mark. It also shows up in some of the other Gospels, so we need to just answer this question, like, why the silence? So look at verse 24. The unclean spirit states Jesus' identity in 24, and then it says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebukes him, verse 25, saying, be silent, be silent, shut up, and come out of him. Or in verse 34, he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Why? And then after this leper, you know, don't say anything to anyone about it. And again, this isn't the only instances. We won't, we'll hit those when we get to them, but there's others. So why the silence thing? A few reasons, I think. This isn't maybe necessarily exhaustive, but a few reasons we can mention that are helpful to keep in mind. One, Jesus didn't want to kick up prematurely a bunch of messianic fervor. Because on the one hand, he doesn't want crowds who simply come for miracles. The miracles were important. They attested to, they gave proof that the kingdom of God had come in power, but they weren't the point. In fact, they could be a distraction from the point. So if you get the crowds just coming to him to get their handout, their kind of miracle handout, and that's all they want, that's a distraction from the main point. And you see how when Peter went and got him, you know, hey, everybody's looking for you. He's like, okay, I'm going to move on because they're looking for me for the wrong reason. I need to preach and then I ultimately need to die so that everybody knows why they really need me. So he didn't want to kick up this messianic fervor and distract from the main point because people just wanted a miracle worker. On the other hand, messianic expectations had political military connotations in the minds of first century Jews. And any revolutionaries were dealt with swiftly by Rome. So 
Jesus was going to be in control of when he went to the cross, not Rome. So he didn't want to kick up any of that unnecessarily early on. Another reason. So don't kick up the messianic fervor prematurely um, and distract from the main point. Secondly, Jesus alone, actually, before the cross and the resurrection, Jesus alone understood who he was and why he came. His closest disciples constantly misunderstand him, right? To have them be his witnesses before they understood would mean the spread of a false gospel. So, again, like, because he silenced his disciples numerous times. All right? I will skip the third reason. Maybe we'll hit it. Oh, man. I, th- I need to mention the third reason. Um, so the third one, I, I actually didn't buy this one at first when I saw it this week, but it ties in with his MO as the servant of the Lord in Isaiah. There's a hiddenness to the work of the servant in Isaiah that is prophecy of Jesus to come. So, um, Isaiah 53, you know, he goes silently as a lamb before the slaughter. That's a picture of kind of the the quietness, the hiddenness. Um, But to see a really clear example in the Gospels, Matthew 12, so that you see this here. Jesus, aware that the Pharisees wanted to destroy him, withdrew, and many followed him, and he healed them all. And look at this, and ordered them not to make him known. Why? This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. His power moves in a sense by way of hiddenness. It's part of his M.O. Think about the Beatitudes and the kingdom. It's upside down. He doesn't come on a white horse charging and just like coercing everyone into submission. He's going to exercise power through weakness as he serves and as he dies. And that's where real change happens from the inside out, not coerced from the outside in. So it is like part and parcel with how and why he came. This is the wisdom of the cross. This is the power of the cross. It's insane that we would be singing, oh, the wonderful cross. Oh, the, oh, the wonderful lethal injection. Oh, the wonderful electric chair. Like, what? That's insane. Unless, instead of God coming and just like grinding us into submission, God comes and humbly serves us to change us from the inside out uses his power for our good and our freedom and our forgiveness and our, like, meeting all of our real needs to lift us up. That is the power of the cross. So be quiet, (laughs) and I'm going to go about this work quietly until I die and rise again and send my spirit and the kingdom comes, like, 
mustard seed. You know, it spreads like leaven. Do you see? It doesn't come by like, it's just not the exercise of power like the world. Which is why later on, the nations, their leaders lord it over. Not so among you, if you're my disciples. You are to be a servant because even the Son of Man did not come to, to, ser to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So again, that's why he came. He didn't come to be an impressive miracle worker. He came to live and die to bring the kingdom. So, um, yeah, let me see here. <laughs> yep, we need to wrap things up. So that's why he came. It's clear. We'll see more and more as we continue through the gospel. But just note, all authority. Here's, here's what we need to hold together here. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. King Jesus. Don't trifle with him. He can say the word and demonic powers obey. He can touch someone and leprosy is cured. He can just raise someone up with a fever like that. He has all power. So we don't trifle with Jesus. We need to submit to him as our king, trust him as our savior, follow him as our Lord, but also know the way that he uses all of that power is to bless and serve and protect and free and heal and build up and we are to use our power in the same way. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let's pray. Lord, would you please help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and become like him by your grace. We need, we want to be conformed to his image and not conformed to this world in its beliefs about power and abuses of power and use of power for selfish purposes. Lord, help us to see the authority of our king and humbly, meekly bow and help us to see the way he used that authority and be thrilled and then use the authority and the power we are given to serve just like he served us. In Jesus' name, amen.